In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Micah chapter 6. Our chapter for today captures a profound dialogue between God and humanity as the prophet challenges the people of Israel to remember their covenant with Yahweh. This passage begins with God's plea for the people to recall His faithfulness and righteousness, contrasting it with their own disobedience and lack of gratitude. God then emphasizes that what He desires is justice, kindness, and humility rather than ritualistic offerings. And the chapter will conclude with God's expectations of us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. Good morning and blessed Advent. Today is Thursday, December 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. They can also provide mission speakers for you and do all kinds of things for your outreach ministry, so check them out at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, if you have any comments or questions about our program, feel free to email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and, uh, you know, friend me there, send me a message through Facebook. And if you have any questions uh, that need to go on the air, then we'll put them on uh, next time we're uh, live. But right now, I'd like to introduce my guest. It's the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Squires. He's the pastor of Bethel Lutheran Church in Gurney, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Squires, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. This is your first time on the program, so welcome. And one of the things I like to do whenever I have a, a brand new guest, either new to the program or just new because I've only been host for, well, this is my second year, uh, so I'd like to say, you know what, tell us a little bit about yourself. Share with the listeners a little bit how God is working through you and your congregation, as little or as much as you'd like to share. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm from Minnesota originally and grew up there in a small uh, Missouri Synod church and then uh, left, went to college in uh, Chicago, thought I was going to go into radio, actually. Interesting. Uh, this is the closest I've gotten uh, because uh, partway through college, I uh, realized that God uh, was calling me into the ministry. So, um, you know, kept my undergrad and went off to seminary. And now I've been in ministry for 23 years, 10 years up in Wisconsin and a couple of different congregations. And now we've been here in Gurney, Illinois, far northern suburbs of Chicago for 13 years. And my wife Susan and I and our three boys uh, who are 19, 17, and 16. So wow. uh, yeah, yeah, it's a little crazy. But uh, and uh, when we got here, uh, Bethel had said, we were looking for a pastor that'll help us connect with the community. And I said, great, how are you doing that now? And they said, well, we we collect some food and give it to the food bank and, you know, a couple other things. But I said, but like, are you connecting with people? And not so much. And so what we've been focused on over the last 13 years together is how not to just collect stuff or give away things, but 
to build supportive relationships with our neighbors. And of course, that is challenging and messy, but it's also rewarding. And uh, we've made amazing friends over the years, and we've uh, seen people begin to see where Jesus really fits into their daily lives. So it's been very exciting. That's excellent. Well, um, I introduced you as uh, the Reverend Doctor, so tell us a little bit about your doctoral work. Uh, Sure. I have a uh, Doctor of Ministry uh, from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Uh, Did that, uh, gosh, it's been a number of years ago now, Uh, but uh, and my focus was on uh, working in the community. Uh, How do we as uh, Lutherans remain faithful to our doctrine, but still engage in work with other churches and and get to know other Christians. Uh, So that was the focus of my work. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show today. So we are going into Micah chapter six. This is the penultimate episode, the penultimate chapter of Micah's uh, prophetic word here. Uh, Before we get into any of that text, though, would you please start our time together off with a prayer? Sure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the wherever we are and where you've gathered us to be hearing your word together. And we thank you for the, the gift of technology that allows us to do that. We thank you for the gift of your word, uh, a technology in itself, a written word that's been passed down through all these generations preserved by you so that we can hear your, your truth and your hope. And so now open our hearts, open our minds uh, to hear, read, inwardly digest what you have for us today from the prophet Micah. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, we last time we were together, which was just yesterday, uh, we covered Micah 5. And folks at home, you'll know that if you were listening, Micah 5 prophesied that birth of the future ruler from Bethlehem. This is a, a key text. It, it shows up again when Herod is looking to find out where the Messiah will be born. But it emphasizes the humble origins of this future figure who will bring peace and security to Israel. And despite Bethlehem's small size, this ruler's significance will extend far beyond a restoration of Israel's strength and prestige are just on the horizon. And we know, as we talked about yesterday, that this chapter unmistakably points to the birth of of our Savior in Bethlehem. It echoes the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, and it's a powerful reminder of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises through Christ. So this being a cornerstone of our belief, we now go into this next section because while we have all this hopeful messianic talk, our section for today, brother, it it turns a little uh, legal. It's like a legal drama now. Suddenly the Lord is, is putting us on trial. He has an indictment. Uh, let's, let's, we're going to get into that today. Anything else you want the people to know before we start reading any of the text? Yeah, no, that, I think you've led into it really well, but yes, we, Micah's got some tough words, but in the midst of it, there's always the hope of God. Yeah. So let's just, let's just go on then. Uh, We ended five with this concept that there is going to be a remnant that is going to be delivered, but at the same time, we, now we come into six, hear what Yahweh says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. 
Hear you mountains, the indictment of Yahweh, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For Yahweh has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now that's only the first two verses. Before we get into exactly what that indictment is, boy, what does it mean to be indicted by the Lord? That's pretty scary. It, it, it is pretty scary being brought into God's courtroom. And I, I just always find it amazing, too, that uh, it's not, not a normal courtroom because the jury are the mountains and the hills. <laughs> and yeah, it stands uh, out for sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, all, all of creation uh, is there to, to hear this conversation, this drama, courtroom drama between Yahweh and, and the people. And uh, if that's not humbling, I'm not sure uh, what is. <laughs> and, uh, but it's also, uh, it comes out of that, like right on the heels of what you were saying is, uh, there's one who will come from Bethlehem who will rescue the people. And there will be a remnant, a, a small uh, group that will be preserved, even though God is bringing judgment on the people for their uh, false belief and false ways of living. Uh, so there's this hope, and then you turn, and still we have to go to court, and we still have to hear what Yahweh has against his people. Yeah, I mean, this idea of pleading your case, I'm going to contend with you, it, it's a Hebrew terminology that does have judicial significance, but even in this context, this is not the first or last time that God is going to be contending with his people. We see in Isaiah chapter 3, it says, Yahweh has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. Jeremiah 2 says, Therefore I shall contend with you, declares Yahweh, <clears throat> pardon me, and your children's children's I will contend with them. And we see here the same thing in Hosea. So time and again, God comes to accuse his people and of course, the accusations are going to be based on them not keeping the covenant. It, it's something I think we always look back with fascination on because we see the people of Israel, they experience time and again, not only spiritual, but very visible, very tangible, um, I guess, proofs of God's caring for them. And yet time and again, they fall away. But of course, that really hits home for us too, because we know we do the very same thing. Even though we have absolutely no reasons to not trust in the Lord, how often do we not hold up our end of the covenant? Right, right. And uh, as we get into this, uh, I really see the uh, what's going on in chapter 6 is this sense of God calling us to remember who he is, who he's made us to be, and we keep coming to him um, in, in, in the wrong approach, <laughs> not really remembering the relationship with him, uh, but kind of a wrong approach, but I'm getting ahead of us. Sure, sure. Well, one thing before we read anything more, you already brought it up. <laughs> Hear you mountains, the indictment, and you enduring foundations of the earth. This, this brings to my mind anyway, when I hear these words, Jesus calling the rocks to witness against people. You know, what it, tell us a little bit about why, why is it that the creation is being summoned as, as you said, kind of the jury or even as, a, as, even as an expert witness against? I mean, why, why this language? What does it signify? 
to me, it, it it calls, of course, back to the fact that Yahweh is the creator, and so all things come from him. There's also this that sense that creation is broken because of the sin of humanity. And so while I don't think, you know, mountains actually could, uh, you know, speak up in a courtroom, uh, we do look out at the world and see how the creation itself has suffered because of the brokenness and the sin in the world. And so, you know, the mountains, the hills, the foundations, they're also part of the injured party really here. Mm-hmm. Um, just as the jury uh, of peers in a, you know your local county courthouse is also part of the injured parties when there's a crime committed against the community. So I, th- I think partly you could look, be looking at it that, but also because the mountains are ancient <laughs> <laughs> sure. and they've seen it all. And uh, so if we think that, uh, you know, Nobody was watching. Well, <laughs> we've been surrounded by uh, witnesses. You bring up a really good point. You know, in legal terms, you cannot bring a lawsuit against someone unless you have what they call standing. That is, you have to have, you have to be a party to it some in some way. And and him calling up the creation. Let's just you know summarize all of what he's saying by saying creation. You're right. The Bible tells us the creation groans under the sin that humanity ushered into it. And while it may seem a little left field to bring this up, but I think this is, is, a, is a good, I don't know, encouragement toward Christians on why we should be good stewards of the creation. I mean, how, how often do we think of like environmentalists or, or taking care of creation? We often think of that as some sort of liberal idea or left-wing idea. Um, but the, the truth is it's very much a Christian idea because while here it's very symbolic that the creation is going to witness against us, but there's also, I think, a real life application that, you know, we above all should be taking care of what God has given us. Exactly. And I mean, yeah, I, I've always been more comfortable outside than inside and love being out in the woods. There aren't many mountains to witness anything in uh, upstate uh, (laughs) Illinois, but I love being out in in the woods. And I I sense the groaning of knowing that, um, you know, environmental damage and the things that are um, polluting the world. I I sense that groaning uh, in creation. I also sometimes just have a groaning because, you know, I'll meet a bird or a weasel or something and i just have this longing like why can't we just be friends but instead (laughs) you know uh they're afraid of us and sometimes we're afraid of them and uh you know that one day when all things will be restored uh, the new earth and i imagine being able to be friends with all the weasels and <laughs> birds a, and everything else. That's such a nice image. But you're right, though. I mean, we, we often forget that we have sort of this enmity with creation because of the fall into sin and, and creatures to boot. Well, let's keep on going. I'm going to go into verses 3, 4, and 5 now. This is where God's going to really lay out what his problem is or what problem he has with us, I should say. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, 
and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of Yahweh. And, and that's the end of verse 5. So, yeah, God says, basically, you guys have broken my covenant. What did I do to you? <laughs> you know, how have I wearied you, God says. And then he goes on to list all the things that he's done for them. Right. And what I find very intriguing is, you know, earlier in Micah, God's got very specific uh, indictments against the people um, that they have been trusting in their own strength or figuring they can make some deals with the, the foreign nations and that's going to keep them safe. Or they've got the carved images and the pillars to different false idols. Those are all very specific indictments. But now here, he just called the mountains together. And basically all he says is, what have I done to you? And then recounts this history. But I think that's the most important thing is that he is telling them, have you forgotten who I am and who you are and what I have done for you? And how often do we see that throughout the Old Testament uh, as soon, you know, as soon as God brings them out of Egypt uh, and Moses goes up on the mountain and Aaron and the people get a little, I don't know, antsy, you know, and so then. Uh, Aaron says, well, let's make some golden, uh, a golden calf. And this will be our God who brought us out of Egypt. Like you're thinking, you just came through the Red Sea in this incredible, miraculous way. And now you're making a gold idol. But it's, that's how quickly they and we forget who God is and what he has done for us. And instead we turn to all other kinds of things that we think are going to save us or uh, lead us through. Yeah, it's easy for us to join in the indictment and say, oh, yeah, those those Israelites, they were so awful at remembering. But as you pointed out, yeah, we fall into that sin too. You, you, you talked about them becoming impatient for Moses and they, you know, they create the golden calf. I think even before and after that, when they're complaining so much of, they're remembering with fondness the flesh pots of Egypt, right? They're remembering with fondness their servitude. And and really, uh, many times we're accusing Moses of, of having ill intent by bringing them out of Egypt. And, of course, when they accuse Moses, they're accusing God. So, you know, this is a people who time and again have turned God's wonderful gifts into something negative, and the, or at the very least, as, as you said, forget what God has done. And so we read those stories and we go, oh, shame on them. But how often do we do the same thing? You're so right. You know, if, if God were to indict the people of the United States today, I wonder if the indictment would be even more harsh than what we hear in the scriptures from his people. Yeah, I mean, and I guess I would change it to like if he was going to indict the church today fair, fair. Um, yes. just to, to make that equation between Israel the people of God and, and the church uh, I, I think a lot of these indictments would would stand they might you know be a, 
d- different details and things like that. But um, I know how often I forget uh, what God has done for me and start relying again on myself, other people, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, 401k do I have? I mean, like trust in all kinds of things, uh, forgetting that God is the one. I think also part of the challenge is continuing to remember what God has done and that being part of my story, my history. So even for Micah, uh, you know, at the time of Micah, I mean, the people that are hearing these words from God, they weren't around (laughs) in Egypt and in slavery or when Balak uh, and Balaam were around. They weren't there. And so in some ways they could say to God, no, I I don't remember what you did. But the idea has always been what God did for our ancestors is what he has done for us. And the reason he did it for our ancestors is to continue this promise that he has And that's the same for us is uh, I don't remember in the sense of being there at the cross when Jesus was crucified or when he rose again. But that uh, what that happened in history is my history, is my story, is, you know, can be all of our history, our story, that it is uh, the thing to remember because it is the hope that we have. So, you know, you, you, you corrected me earlier when I, well, you didn't really correct me, but you wanted to make it nuanced when I said earlier about like, what if he were indicting America? And you said, well, let's talk about the church so that it's a little bit more to one, one to one. And you're absolutely right because so many people think of it in national terms. So these are the people of Israel. Therefore, does their history only belong to people who are genetically and ethnically offsprings of those who were there. And, and of course, the argument is when it comes to Israel, Christ, of course, is all Israel reduced to one man. And now Israel, as it, as it applies to God's people, are all those whose faith, hope, and trust is in the Lord. So when we talk about heritage, when we talk about history, we too forget that the delivery from slavery is part of our history too, not because we're ethnically Hebrew, but because we are a part of God's people brought in. But even the Jews of Jesus's day, just like these who hadn't experienced it, so clearly forgot what God had done. I, I, I'm just I'm thinking of John chapter eight when the Jews are in this discussion with Jesus and they said. <laughs> We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? One of the most ridiculous statements. I mean, their whole identity was based on the fact that they've been released from slavery time and again. So we do that too, though. We think, well, that's Jewish history. The Old Testament is, is, is the Jewish scriptures. The Old Testament is, but no, it is, it's not about Jew and Gentile. The New Testament makes that clear. It's about, if we have to make a dichotomy, it's going to be God's people versus those who God still desires to be his people. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, we, uh, this year uh, is our year with confirmation to go through, uh, kind of trace the promise of salvation through the Old Testament, uh, taking, uh, you know, not all of them, but some of the promises that point ahead to Jesus. And so we had been talking about Abraham 
and talking about how we also are part of uh, the generations of the descendants of Abraham through faith. Uh, we are grafted into that whole promise, and the promise is always meant to be a blessing to all nations. So we were talking about that in class, and then uh, it was just the next Sunday, what I, I think, that I was preaching about Abraham, and the acolyte was there who was in had been in class and so I got to a place and I just said but you you know to the congregation you have to remember we are part of the descendants of Abraham and do you know why that is and I turned to the acolyte I had not prepared him but I had remembered he had clearly uh you know caught on to the idea and he said through faith and uh it was great uh I'm not sure if he liked me putting him on the spot but he did great <laughs> Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it's always, it really warms our hearts as pastors when we see anybody, adults and children, get it. And, and and not because we're somehow so much smarter, but I think sometimes we remember when we first got it. You know, maybe that was long before seminary. Maybe it was during seminary. Maybe it was well after seminary. We're like, <laughs> oh, that just clicked for me. I can't believe it. Yeah. I, that's what's so great about the scriptures and why you really can't exhaust your study of them. I mean, you, there's always something to learn. As I turn to back to our text, God says, for I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, right? And that makes sense. We, we've heard that message of God, him keeping his side of the covenant. But then it says, and I sent before you Moses. Okay, makes sense. Aaron, sure, sure. And Miriam, we have Moses's sister, the prophetess Miriam mentioned here as examples of the leaders that he sent. I, I think that could be kind of striking for people who tend to think that the scripture is so heavily male dominated. Well, of course, you know, God is a patriarchal, but you know, here we have this beautiful testament to Miriam's contributions. Yeah, and I think that is a reminder for us to to go back and when we're going through the Exodus, and I know I'm, I'm guilty of this, is uh, we kind of have our standard uh, readings and our standard way of, of looking at the Exodus, and maybe we don't always include the Song of Miriam uh, or don't even realize that it's Moses' sister who talks about uh, throwing the horse and the rider into the sea. Uh, mm -hmm. But that is a is a beautiful song uh, in the scriptures, and so how to to lift up uh, Miriam, but also how Miriam uh, was part of uh, you know leading with Moses and Aaron. I think is a, a very important reminder. Yeah, I mean Miriam leads all the other women in that song, and yeah, if you go back and look at the words of that song, I mean it is very much a a a a victory dance over. God's annihilation of the enemies. And, you know, I guess in our modern ears, we think, oh gosh, that seems, you know, it's almost like they're rejoicing over the death of people, but, you know, they're rejoicing over the fact that God is willing to go to such extents to save them and that God is just. And basically when we see that, we realize that, well, those who reject God receive punishment for their sins. And if anything, it should caution us to be even more, faithful to the covenant that he's given us. And that's what he's calling them to do. He says in five, Oh, remember my people, what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Oh, roughly speaking, what are the events that he's referencing there? 
Yeah, so uh, the you know Moab, uh, king of Balak, or, or sorry, Balak, king of Moab, uh, you know, had a plan. He he wanted to uh, you know fight against the Israelites. He uh, was threatened by them, and so he calls on Balaam uh, as a prophet to hey go curse uh, these Hebrews, and. Uh, Balaam isn't allowed to go curse uh, to the point where um, uh, God uses Balaam's donkey uh, to, you know, tell Balaam, I'm not going to let you curse uh, my people. So God intervenes in this uh, incredibly miraculous and strange way. A, A talking donkey, usually we only think of Shrek. Uh, but here God is using uh, whatever he could to keep Balaam from uh, going down that road of cursing uh, God's people. One of my favorite uh, events in the scriptures, not only because of the you know cosmically comical aspect of your donkey reprimanding you, but yeah. but also because of you know just the way that God intercedes on behalf of his people. And of course, that's what he's pointing to. Well, I'm going to have to intercede on behalf of the messages that are coming up. So, folks, we're going to pause for just a few moments, listen to these messages. But when we come back, uh, Pastor Squires and I will keep on going through Micah chapter 6. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Squires. He's the pastor of Bethel Lutheran Church in Gurney, Illinois. And we're going through Micah. Before we head back into the text, I just want to remind you once again that it's really easy to reach out to me. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. But let's head right back into the text because that is what you're here for. And when we were right before we went to break, we just sort of finished up the first five verses of this text. We have quite a few more to go. We'll pick up the pace a little bit, but it's nice to set that that foundation for what exactly is going on. God is calling his people to remember all that he has done for them. I guess I guess the best way to phrase it, Pastor, and correct me if you have a better way, is that by remembering what God has done for us, even though that's gospel, in some ways, it convicts us when it when we recognize how unworthy we are of all those gifts. Uh, yeah, exactly. And to think that uh, that we're unworthy, and yet God has done these things for us, uh, is uh, is convicting. And but you're right. There's gospel there too. Is to know that He has done this, and He keeps coming back to remind us: This is what I have done for you. You know, why do you preach 
practically the same sermon every Sunday. You know, it's it's, it's not because uh, we, you know, only thing we know is to talk about Jesus, but it's because, like Paul says, we, we choose to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And, and why do we do that? Because we need to be reminded, just like God always reminded the people of what he did in the old covenant, now we have to remind people about what he's done for us through Jesus. Well, let's keep on going. This next section, the ESV editor's uh, title, What Does Yahweh Require? Starting with verse 6. With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord, what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? All right, and that's a question at the end. So these questions, 6, 7, and 8, all of these are questions. They, we're able to tell from the text sort of what they're expecting the answer of, uh, you know, whether they want us to say yes or no. In Hebrew, it's, 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 we can tell. And in these cases, the anticipated answer is um, that, that, that we are the ones who have failed, that we, we couldn't come before him with these things because it's not enough. Take us through this. Mm. You know, 10,000 rivers of oil, thousands of rams. I thought God's the one who told us to do these sacrifices. Is he not pleased with them? Yeah, the, the way I look at this is that uh, verses 6 and 7, this is, uh, the, this is Judah, the Israel, people of God, on the witness stand. Uh, they've heard God say, you know, what more could I have done for you? And the people are like, well, but we did all these things for you. We, we you know, the burnt offerings and the thousands of rams and the rivers of oil, I mean, do you even want us to go as far as the other kinds of uh, idols and, and religions do? Should we give our firstborns uh, to cover up our sin? And I, I look at that as Israel's on the witness stand, and they ask that. And standing back, knowing where this is going, you kind of do a facepalm. Like, oh my gosh, you are not just asking that. I can't believe you're asking that because it misses the whole point. And then verse 8, I would put it in the voice of um, Micah, maybe, or maybe directly from God, but he has told you what is good. He has told you, O human, what is good. And that it is about doing justice, loving kindness, or uh, steadfast love, mercy, and walking humbly with your God. And I uh, I take some of this uh, thinking from uh, Walter Brueggemann, uh, a great Old Testament scholar. We may not agree with him on everything, but I love some of the ways that he frames things. And he frames this as God starts and says, I have done these things for you so that you are in relationship with me. Israel comes back and says, but we did all these transactional things. It's it's all about commodities. It's uh, here's the number of sacrifices that we have done. Here's our spreadsheet, God. And then that verse eight is back to saying, but no, 
what God desires from his people is to have a right relationship with him and a right relationship with uh, all people. And so it's missing it. It's commodity versus relationship. And I think that helps so much, especially as we move into talking about what is justice? Um, how do we uh, move with justice and mercy? That it is about relationship and not just commodity or a tick sheet that, uh, you know, we can check some things off that we did. That I think is a, is a crucial thing here. I think of Isaiah chapter 5 and the vineyard of Yahweh, and skipping right to the point, verse 7 says, For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. We get the same sense here in Micah's words. You know, he looks for mercy, justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly and with humility with God. And what does he see? Well, in this particular case, it's not necessarily injustice yet, but it's thousands of rams and thousands of rivers of oil. I mean, that's all hyperbolic, but it's like God's saying, even if you were to muster up such a significant sacrifice, it's still not enough because, and, and, and God's made this clear from the beginning, it was never about the sacrifices. They were to point to something. Just like John the baptizer wasn't about bringing people to himself, he was to point to something greater. Or all the prophets weren't about making churches for themselves, but pointing to the Messiah to come and God's covenants. And God says, all of these sacrifices you're doing, and your word you use is exactly right, it's very transactional. Right. And I think if we were to compare that to our lives today, there are plenty of people who come to church, <laughs> maybe sit on the front pew, but the rest of their life is not is not demonstrating the love that God wants. It doesn't do justice, isn't walking humbly with God. That is, they genuinely think, and maybe this is less and less the case, but they genuinely think that as long as they can tick off the box that they've been in church, then the rest of the week doesn't matter. Um, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think it's also a, a sense of... Um oh, God's mad at me, so I'm going to say, but I've been doing these things you asked of me for worship, the sacrifices. But that ignores what God's been upset about (laughs) uh, in the earlier parts of Micah, which was that they were robbing from the poor and they weren't paying attention to the the marginalized and the people at the, the edges of society. And so instead they say, but we've done these, you know, uh, flamboyant kinds of sacrifices. And God's saying, yeah, but the whole time, uh, like back in chapter three, um, you've been tearing the skin off my people, their flesh from off their bones. Like you've been eating up uh, the poor. uh, And so these sacrifices mean nothing because you are not doing justice. You are not focusing on the human flourishing for all people. You've, you've missed the point. It is about a relationship with me as Yahweh and a relationship with one another in a society uh, that is meant to be different than anything else that we'll see out there. We are meant to live very differently from what we see and instead, 
Israel, the people, they've gotten caught up in doing things like the nations, much as uh, you know, we all struggle with uh, how do we live in a way that shows that justice and that mercy uh, through Jesus um, and not get caught up in how uh, the world works. What he says he requires of them or of us is pretty striking because you, if you say, you know, what does it mean to do justice? Well, really, any sort of proper relationship with God's going to involve a proper relationship with one neighbor. To do justice is to uphold your neighbor. Really, it's as simple as that, to uphold your neighbor as God calls you to do in the commandments. To walk humbly with God, humility makes sense. But what stood out to me was the word kissed here, right? To love kindness, but it's really saying to love what we often translate as uh, steadfast love, like to love steadfast love or to love God's loving kindness. It, it seems repetitive, but it looks here like God's basically saying, I show you a steadfast love. I show you loving kindness, this chesed that's, that's, that's different than what that you show other people. And I want you to love the kindness that I love you with. Do people have a problem accepting God's loving kindness? Is that what he's getting at? Or do you have a different way of understanding that part? I think the, for me, I think for uh, Americans today, like in an American church, and uh, when we hear the word justice, most of the time we only think of um, you know, the court justice system, criminal justice system, and um, in what you would call retributive justice, uh, punishment for wrongdoing. And by putting uh, mispot, uh, you know, justice together with kessid, uh, steadfast love or mercy, by putting those two things together, I think it points us to a more holistic sense uh, what uh, is called restorative justice, that it isn't just about punishing the wrongdoer, but it is also uh, lifting them up out of their circumstances, uh, helping them to move forward in a new way. And that is a <laughs> radical. Uh, some would say, um, you know, that sounds kind of, um, you know, leftist or whatever. And, 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 say that that's not what we're called to do, but I, I just can't get around the fact that justice and kindness are are married there together. And so um, I was listening to the Bible Project, and those guys are uh, so um, well in, um, studied, and they, they summed it up by making other people's problems my problems, uh, which, which is really, uh, that's humility, and that is hard to do. Um, I know some of the things we've been working on here uh, in Gurney and Lake County is, you know, thinking about are there ways that uh, the criminal justice system needs to be reformed so that it leads to restoration. Um, been trying to pay attention to a gun violence prevention initiative where um, there are actually outreach workers going out into the streets trying to put a stop before it happens, uh, gun violence between uh, gangs and things like that. But what they're doing is making other people's problems their problems by doing uh, that work in the streets. And I think that 
much more goes towards this holistic uh, calling that we have here in Micah six eight. Well, I can't disagree with any of that. One thing I have noticed, though, about modern society is there there are certain groups or elements of the population that seem to be looking for injustice, even in places perhaps where it's not exactly injustice. I, I think we have to be careful about not making everything into some great cause for justice and just recognize that when we talk about when we talk about reconciliation, when we talk about the injustices of this world, yes, we're to serve our fellow man. We're certainly supposed to respond to the faith God gives us with good works that help our neighbor. Of course, at the same time, though, we have Jesus saying things like the poor will always be with you. That doesn't mean we should just throw up our hands and not help the poor, but I think it also reminds us that ultimate, ultimate, um, I guess, <laughs> uh, ruling over injustice, the ultimate justice comes at the cross and then is fulfilled when Christ returns. So part of our act with justice is not just to go out and, you know, help people with uh, indigence, to help uh, fight gun violence, whatever it might be that we think is a good cause. I think doing that outside of the recognition that ultimately Christ is the one who will bring in the true peace is, is sometimes pretty fruitless. So I think that's where the Christian is in a unique position to take up these causes just like I said earlier about, you know, environmentalism, take up these causes from the perspective of looking forward to Christ's return. And I, and I think that we'll get closer to what God's wanting us to do. Yeah, I, I, would, I guess I would just say that in those individual situations and in relationships uh, with people who are uh, feeling or, you know, experiencing injustice, you know, meeting them where they're at, what they're experiencing, and then saying what they're going through matters to us, matters to me. How can I be supportive? How can I be an advocate for you? And in that process, if that is a person who does not know Jesus, uh, that is a a huge way of witnessing um, to that person and being able to uh, say, God also cares about the things that you have uh, uh, suffered through, whether they were of your own doing or someone else's doing, but God cares about you. Uh, and uh, uh, sorry about that, but it's too long to tell. But I mean, when I first met somebody uh, working on criminal justice reform, um, I said, well, are you, are you a man of faith? Just wondering. And he says, no, not, not really. I've, I've seen too many terrible things. But then over the course of time, um, you know, partly through conversations with me and many others, uh, this man came to faith in Jesus because he saw that Jesus actually cared about him the whole time that he was going through um, some terrible things. Absolutely. Let's keep on going with our text. We're going to start with verse 9. The voice of Yahweh cries to the city and its sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall hunger be within you. You shall put away not to preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. 
You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now, that is where our text ends today, which is a little unfortunate because it ends very strong. <laughs> you know, it ends before we get a lot more hope that's coming in the next and final chapter. But this is where we're at. Take us through this. So, so this section, which the ESV calls the destruction of the wicked, begins with the voice of Yahweh cries to the city. The city is Jerusalem. What's he saying here? So I think it is a... Uh, we're continuing in the courtroom. Uh, God had said, what more could I have done for you? Don't you remember all these things I've done for you? The people said, but we came to you with a bunch of sacrifices. Uh, God, Micah say, but what he was looking for was justice, mispot, and, and kessid, steadfast love, and humility. And then it's just almost like uh, announcing the sentence, you know? Um, the sentence against the city, the sentence against the people who are in the courtroom. And it is a very harsh sentence. Uh, and uh, basically reversing uh, what they thought of their uh, prosperity and their security. Uh, they had plenty of food to eat, but... He is going to make them hungry. Uh, they they could put away food, but he's going to destroy that food. And so he's reversing their circumstances. I also think this might be an, an answer to something that isn't said between verses 8 and 9. I'm just imagining here. But mm -hmm. um, when, when Micah says, hey, people, you're supposed to love justice and kindness, I can imagine the people going, oh, yeah, well, of course we do. We love justice and kindness. Right, right. Who does and God, and God says, yeah, well, what about the ways in which you cheat in the scale so that people you know, are cheated out of money and the violence and the lies that you speak and uh, the ways you are deceitful? In other words, he, he calls them on it. Yeah, of course you love justice and kindness. But this is not justice. This is not kindness and mercy. And uh, that seems to be where uh, we land with this last part of chapter 6. Well, and, and yeah, there is definitely this hypocrisy going on, something that, well, we have to admit that we struggle with today. I mean, it's one thing to repent of your sins, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, and, of course, receive Christ's forgiveness— and the world still call you a hypocrite because that's going to happen. <laughs> They're going to say, oh, you're a hypocrite no matter what. That part we kind of know. But <laughs> there's another way to say, well, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I do all the right things while not actually recognizing that, well, maybe we don't do all the right things. Maybe it's easier for us to judge the brother than it is for us to examine ourselves, log in the eye and all. So I hear that too, this language of, you and, and I like what you're saying because I, I would agree with you. There's this sense of we've done all the right things, Lord. And he goes, okay, well, what about the scales? You know, that's not that doesn't happen inside the temple usually. That doesn't happen um, uh, around uh, the, the, the Passover table. That's your, your real life, I think, mm -hmm. to use modern terms. Oftentimes people segregate their real lives from, say, their church life. And 
well, that's a, that I think has been happening for centuries and centuries. And God is basically saying, no, your relationship with me, your covenant has to permeate every part of your life, including those scales and those weights that you've been carrying around, you know. Right. And we see God calling us out on our sin all the time, but but out of love, right? He wants us to turn from those sins. Sure. And also these are sins that are, again, back to a commodity transaction way of thinking. Um, I'm going to just use, you know, a slight off uh, weight in measuring out flour in the market just because I need to get a little bit more money, but it is breaking that relationship uh, with with other people just because I'm thinking in terms of commodity transaction. I'm not thinking of them a- as people. And as soon as we start doing that, we forget that it is about a relationship. And with God, it is also about relationship, not a transaction. In fact, it, kind of where it lends is that you've kept the statutes of Omri, you know, like a, a wicked king and Ahab, a really wicked king. Um, like basically, you're in a better relationship with those guys who are now mm. dead. You're in better relationship with them than you are with me. But the relationship, according to Ahab and Omri, the relationship, according to all this cheating, is leading you nowhere. It is actually, it's leading you to death. Instead, this is what I have been calling you to do. You know, that, wow. You know, I'm I'm just sort of taking it in because one thing you said really brought some clarity to me as I'm trying to apply these things to us today. And wicked kings aside, so many people, Christians, are very eager, and as well they should be, to follow all the laws of the land and everything else, sometimes even when they dismiss God's own laws or perhaps they'll do something that's technically legal but not morally correct but it's legal so it gives it this you know imperture of 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 righteousness you know it's something I'd have to develop as I think about it but that's sort of the first thoughts that pop into my head that that sounds a lot like today yeah it does I also think if we go back to that idea of retributive justice and restorative justice if if I put myself in these last verses, and there are plenty of ways where I'm, I've probably skirted the law or, uh, you know, not been generous and all those kind of things. If I put myself in verses nine through sixteen, I don't want God's justice to only be retributive, mean only to be punishment, right. uh, because I'll never survive that. I, I need it to be restorative, and when I realize that, that helps me to recognize what it means to to have that focus for for my neighbors as well yes there needs to be a, a an account uh holding people to account for um sins crimes but also i want to have that restorative perspective that god continually has for his people and for us um it's, it's why he sent jesus <laughs> well as you say let's take this uh, that's just a little bit a uh, step forward you know, we talk about vocations. We talk about the two realms. God is certainly is reigning in both realms of his kingdom, both the left-hand realm of law and government and civil righteousness and the right-hand realm of the church and the gospel. Um, there was a time, especially when it was a theocracy and God was ruling his people or when he was ruling through judges or kings and prophets, that the state also acted out God's justice and his um, punishment. They meted out God's justice. For instance, 
uh, his judgment against the inhabitants of Canaan. They meted out his judgment against them. That call does not exist for us as a church today. While the left-hand realm certainly has the right and duty to punish uh, you know, lawbreakers, we as the church are more, not more, solely about what you're talking about, this, this justice that rehabilitates people, that returns them to the Lord, that, that solves the injustice not with a punishment but with a solution to help them get out of whatever sin that is. That's the church's focus, and yet, either in our words or in our actions, how often do we fall into that idea that thinks that we have to be the ones who are punitive against the world, that we have to be the ones who uh, um, somehow sanction the, uh, or, or, or what's the word I'm looking for, you know, boycott the world, or whatever it is. Yeah. We yeah. somehow have to meet out God's justice, and that's just not what we're called to do. I think of through the Old Testament how often God calls his people to be for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Like that is just a, uh, an ongoing, sometimes it's the triad, sometimes it's the four, the, the quartet uh, of the, those in need. But he calls us to be for them, um, for God and for them. And I take... Uh, a lot of um, direction and hope in that, that I want to be known. I want the church to be known what we are for, uh, even more than what we're against. And sometimes I think what we're against becomes mostly the voice that is heard. Uh, I have some friends in their neighboring city, or uh, Waukegan, um, and a number of churches working together uh, to, to love the community. And they have a... Um, slogan it's a hashtag hashtag for waukegan uh they they want the community to know that the church is there for them to support them to love them to celebrate them um to give them hope um and not just be what uh they're against and i think that is a beautiful uh, approach to this well and i think that's where we're gonna have to leave it because we're at the end of our time but I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Squires. He's the pastor of Bethel Lutheran Church in Gurney, Illinois. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. I look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, tomorrow we're going to finish up Micah's prophecy as we take up chapter 7. In this final chapter, the prophet laments over the corrupt state of society, highlighting the prevalence of deceit and oppression and untrustworthiness among people. Huh, some things don't change. But amid this darkness, Micah expresses an unwavering trust in God's faithfulness and mercy, and he encourages hope in the divine redemption. That's what we're going to look forward to. There's a lot to that chapter, but we're going to cover that tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.